Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast with Oslo Business Forum, where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about innovation and technology applied to solve the world's biggest problems and positively impact billions of people. We are talking to Tanya Akoni, who works with the United Nations Children's Funds, also known as UNICEF, as a senior advisor on innovation. She established and led UNICEF's Global Human Capital Futures and Analytics Portfolio in her role as Chief of Strategic Planning and Operation. She has spearheaded the development of internet businesses and content portals throughout the African continent, was the internet editor of Southern Africa's largest newspaper, and worked at the Washington Post. Wow, thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Isabel. So um, UNICEF's Office of Innovation uses technology to address the biggest challenges facing children today. And I read in an interview with you that you have defined innovation as doing something new or different that adds value. So it cannot simply be something that's novel. It must have impact. And you don't see innovation as something that is necessarily synonymous with technology, but innovating in the way you think and work are equally important. Now, for the ones amongst our listeners who don't know exactly what that means in practice, could you tell us a bit about how you work at the Office of Innovation? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So I think, you know, um, technology is always an area that people immediately gravitate to when you think about innovation. We typically think about, you know, artificial intelligence or some sort of computing piece. But for us, um, uh, we particularly focus on can that new or different thing have impact? And in order to have impact, it means that we need to have it adopted on a very wide scale. So by that, we mean by, you know, millions of people across dozens of countries um, because UNICEF works across uh, you know, 193 countries where we have offices. So for us, even when you have something that is highly technologically based, it can only fail or succeed depending on the human factor. And that is just simply people. So we care as much about how we explain things, how we understand people, for example, using technology, understanding if doing something different on a mobile phone or using a drone is actually going to be adopted because of the human factor. So we spend a lot of our time um, in something called human-centered design or design thinking, which means we really uh, spend time trying to understand anyone who might use or have influence over how um, a new way of doing something um, will be adopted, received, um, and, and will be used. We want to design with those people from the start. So again, I think um, we've said in the past, some of this, some of this innovation might be you know, sort of 10% technology and 90% people, even though often it's the 10% of technology that sort of grabs the headlines. Absolutely. I think you're completely right. Uh, and I think way too often people fall in love with a solution or a technology and they kind of forget to really understand the roots of the problem that they're trying to solve. Uh, could you tell us an example of how you've been able to solve or at least improve a problem because they're pretty vast problems that you're working on using your way of thinking about innovation and technology at uh, UNICEF? Absolutely. Um, and I think we're really fortunate that there are so many sort of examples. Um, but let me choose just one. Um, 
you know, governments around the world find it sometimes difficult to really connect with their populations because there's just sometimes so much distance between them. Um, and sometimes sort of political structures only allow the voices of a few people um, to be heard. And I think that's the same whether you look, for example, across the EU and how the EU cares about, you know, connecting with its population and whether you take that to, you know, Liberia, wanting to know what young people um, care about or Mozambique, where governments are trying to figure out a more effective way of supporting um, the needs of, of adolescents and, and other young adults. Um, so for us, we took a look a number of years ago at the mobile phone. So yes, a piece of technology, but across the world, young people have access to different variations of that technology. By that, I mean some people have no access at all. Um, others have access to basic phones. So not smart smartphones with apps, but just simply phones that can send and receive uh, phone calls or send and receive text messages. Um, and then of course, all the way through to the phones that you or I might have some sort of, you know, latest model smartphone that can have apps and, you know, um, a, a lot of really rich media. When we looked across that, we thought, how could we use the mobile phone, which is growing so quickly, especially in the developing world where we work um, and we, we focus to reach young people and be able to connect their opinions, their perceptions, their voices and concerns more directly to government. And uh, we, we ended up designing um, really a communications platform called U-Report. So it connects things like uh, voice recognition. And, you know, if you if you sort of phone a system and it says, you know, press one for yes or two for no, so you could interact with it that way. Um, we use SMS or text messages extensively. We have um, smartphone apps. We use Facebook Messenger, Line, Viber, all sorts of communication channels of choice. Um, and those are popular with young people in different places in the world, um, you know, very differently. Um, and we regularly, I think, ask probably a couple of hundred um, questions uh, every few months to around just under 8 million young people in 60 countries around the world. But what's really important is those questions, for example, help governments to inform their policy. So uh, when the government of Uganda was designing its youth policy that was focused around a special initiative to support young people starting up businesses, uh, they used the sort of ability to interact with 300,000 young people to understand what was important, were there you know, requirements to this policy that, that say policy makers didn't understand as being difficult for young people to meet, but in practice, especially for the more disadvantaged advantaged young people were really difficult. So in, in fact, that interchange helped to completely shift that particular policy and its requirements in a way that really benefited a lot of young people. Um, similarly, in, for example, Mozambique, what young people told us was, uh, if you're going to be speaking to us about, you know, uh, HIV AIDS, prevention, testing, etc., We'd actually rather not hear from a bureaucratic organization or an institution. What we find most convincing is to speak to other people, to speak to our peers. And so uh, in that country, U-Report essentially functions as a peer-to-peer -peer counseling network. So if I'm a young person and I'm concerned about my status, I don't come through and speak to you know a, a health professional um, or a health worker somewhere. I get connected to a group of young people who can answer my questions 
And what we've seen when we measure the impact of that is that more young people will actually change their behaviors um, and adopt you know, more safe practices, get themselves tested, um, take the sorts of steps that, that contribute to their health much more than sort of all the sorts of traditional ways we've tried to um, use to sort of raise awareness and um, change behavior. Um, and that, again, it's a simple thing. It's a phone. We all know what they are, but they can be used to so much greater impact when you design those solutions with young people themselves. Wow, that's uh, amazing. And and I think you're right. I mean, often it doesn't have to be so incredibly complex. The simple is often good enough, uh, maybe sometimes even better, but uh, it's just about re- applying it in the right ways. And, uh, and that brings me to the next question, because obviously the world is changing faster than ever, and we're seeing increased urbanization, climate change, widening inequality, and the backside of this rapid technological evolution. And I read uh, on UNICEF's uh, web- website that one in four children uh, are living in a country affected by a humanitarian crisis, and almost 50 million children have been uprooted from their homes. And the challenges that you are facing uh, in general are so incredibly vast. And for many, they might seem overwhelming to tackle. How do you decide what problems you tackle next? And what's your process in finding what kind of innovation to develop and apply, like mobile phones in the previous example? Sure. Well, I think that that process of how to decide is for us, it's so difficult because we would really like to sort of tackle um, with others. We're right. We never work alone, but we'd love to be able to tackle just infinitely more problems than uh, we are able to. So um, we do, and we're, we're currently refining actually the way that we go about deciding which problems to tackle, but we really look at the full spectrum of opportunities. And by that, I mean, um, we might look at an emerging technology and, and sort of see how we might test things in a new way. Um, and if you look at the work we've been doing with drone corridors, uh, we've set up four drone corridors around the world, um, and they are there for specifically testing things in, for example, as you were saying, emergencies. Um, so how might we use uh, in in Uganda, for example, uh, drones to help us do flyovers so we can assess, for example, if there's been a huge flood, um, where are the roads, how can we sort of access things, what is the level of damage, um, and that really helps us uh, more quickly uh, decide how we can be most effective in responding to an emergency. Alternately, in Vanuatu, we're flying in the Pacific, we're using drones to fly vaccines to places that are otherwise extremely difficult and expensive to reach with key um, medicines. Those are are something that we do on a very sort of on a pilot basis. So that's very limited population that's benefiting at the moment. But the idea is that we can learn much more um, to do something that then goes through completely sort of scaling up to millions of people. At the other sort of end of the spectrum where we are talking about millions, um, for example, over the last sort of two years, we've worked with the government of Indonesia, um, where they've run the, their biggest ever immunization campaign to tackle measles, mumps and rubella. And that is 17 million young people across 17,000 islands. So the logistics are just incredible. And um, there is everywhere else what it matters most is trying to reach as many young you know people as possible um, because I think as we know from the vaccine news around the world uh, it only is effective if you can really achieve over a certain amount of coverage and by 
connecting up a system of real-time data and real-time monitoring, we were able to help the government of Indonesia understand on a sort of almost hourly basis um, to go through every day and figure out where there were challenges. And those challenges can be very human. So for example, in one of the locations that I traveled to with the Ministry of Health, um, there had been a high school where there were a thousand students to be vaccinated. And over a series of two days, we noticed that um, that vaccination level seemed to be very, very low. And if by the end of the campaign we had to reach, you know, a thousand students, this wasn't going to happen. And we're able remotely to identify, you know, talk to um, the vaccinators in the area and find out what the problem was. And it turned out to be a concern from the, the parents uh, about, you know, about vaccinating their children. And within 24 hours, um, we're able to bring in someone whom the community trusted to address those concerns. And then sort of literally less than 24 hours after that, everything got back on track. In the past, sort of that kind of real-time information, insight, and action is simply not possible. So you would have found out after, you know, two to three months when all the data came in that something didn't go right. Um, and that is sort of, you know, at the scale of reaching maybe 100 people on one side with, with drones at the moment in its pilot phase, going all the way through to, you know, reaching almost 70 million young people, uh, sort of people who needed to be vaccinated. That's the span that we deal with. But how do we decide which problems to tackle? It's really a combination of looking at essentially sort of three or four factors. One of them is where are the most pressing problems facing children and their communities? And when we look at those problems, how do we prioritize them? And it could be that there is a small percentage of, of the population to reach that is incredibly difficult and that we've tried sort of traditional methods and that's really ripe for trying something different because we've either made as much progress as possible using, you know, the tried and tested methods um, and this is, is really where we feel innovation can make that difference. Alternately, we also look at areas where little progress has been made um, and where, you know, we, we and the development community are desperate to make better progress because, for example, the sustainable development goals in that area will just not be met at all. Um, and so, for example, something like water and sanitation, when you're trying to reach um, people to improve, um, you know, their their uh, access to clean water and safe water and um, effective sanitation that can reduce disease and death, much more needs to be done. So that, again, is another area where we could, for example, always look to partner with the private sector as well in how to address that problem. So it's not only what are all the problems, but what are the kinds of contexts where innovation is going to help us um, drive through a barrier, um, you know, and where, um, for example, there could be very few solutions. And so there's great opportunity to be really inventive and ingenious. I mean, now we've talked a little bit about technology and it's fascinating to see the different uh, technologies that you're exploring and also testing and uh, have implemented different places. Um, and I truly am a technology optimist, uh, even though there have been some dire backlashes of it lately. And I know we both actually share experience as Singular University faculty and uh, are well versed in the potential technology holds to positively impact billions of uh, people. 
Uh, now, I read um, on your site, uh, UNICEF, that uh, you, together with Arm and Dahlberg, did some uh, in-depth research into untapped for-profit business opportunities with the biggest potential to deliver positive impact and then through a learning process. And I'm sure that was also uh, similar to the process that you do with all these uh, kids sending out uh, the, the questions through the phones and stuff with people in Jakarta and Mexico City and Nairobi about their needs, seeing firsthand how technologies are directly improving their lives and then sizing local and global markets. You came out with six big tech bets and they were... Digital learning, multimodal skilling, smart recruitment, water metering, emergency response, and community or commuter ride sharing. Uh, can you tell us a bit about m- the process on landing on these six segments and what investing in these sectors and technologies can mean for society? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, those are sort of among, um, uh, uh, they're sort of a subset of problems that are really focused on urban environments. Um, so I think a lot of us who live in a city of any kind can definitely relate to those in different ways. Um, and it, so part of, you know, the process was very, very um, human-centered led. Um, and that said, you know, along with trying to understand those problems best and really critically understand how we can work with the private sector as well as the public sector, um, I think really uh, is, is how we we came up with, with those six tech bets. Um, you know, where we've been focusing a lot of our, our time um, is in some of those where we feel the greatest potential currently exists. So, for example, water and sanitation, as I mentioned, is, is actually um, in UNICEF's new innovation strategies, one of the four key areas that we, we really want to focus on. Um, and when you comp- when you pair that challenge with something like water sensors and water quality meters, so, you know, pieces of different type of technology, the sensors are definitely, for example, Something that Arm, who partnered with us on, um, uh, is a is a great world's leading IP um, owner of sensor, you know, things that drive sensors. Um, when you pair that together with being able to understand, is my water clean and drinkable? Um, you know, what you know, are there leaks anywhere? Those sorts of things can really be game changing and life saving, not only life impacting. And so, you know, typically what we're we're looking at there is. How can we be a catalyst um, in, you know, governments who need to provide those basic services such as water to communities often in, you know, really poor urban areas who are struggling to even get access to basic services or may have water coming out there, their, you know, shared taps, but they may not know if that water is source is safe or not, um, to actually building the business around that. So, for example, if you have sensors, if you have smart meters, how can you design business models? models um, for a different type of situation where people are buying water in very sort of limited quantities. How can you bring all that together um, and and really use business and you know business models to deliver basic needs um, to, to you know to populations? Um, and that you know mentioning water it does make us think a lot about you know Norway in particular because Norway has incredible infrastructure companies you know builds amazing pipelines has a lot of knowledge around how to use tag sensors internet of things etc and and so we we you know have been already 
not not necessarily only in this area, but in, in a number of other areas, working with different um, businesses in Norway um, and, of course, with Innovation Norway itself, with, uh, for example, um, the, the mobile phone company Telenor, which has uh, helped us in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, with very different types of initiatives that make use of their, you know, their networks and investments there. But how can you bring these all together? Because uh, gone, you know, I think maybe 50 years ago, uh, the sorts of problems that we tackle could have been significantly progressed with the sorts of resources that, you know, organizations like ours brought. Today's challenges are much bigger in scale. Um, and today is a truly connected world. So we, we look at tackling problems and, and as those six tech, tech bets I hopefully articulate is it's not just the development community, nor is it just government, nor is it the private sector alone who can solve these. You really need the leverage that comes from bringing those all together and trying to find what is the advantage and the win for each of those groups um, of stakeholders. And, you know, for us, of course, first of all would be the community um, who, who are, you know, for us, key in designing and prioritizing the sorts of solutions um, that that would be more effective in their view as well. I, I hear that connectivity is obviously very important for a lot of these different initiatives and uh, innovations to be successful where you go. But then I know that I, I, I haven't read the last number, but I think from at least uh, late 2018, uh, I think it was four billion people were connected. Um, but I mean, that's like a little over half of the globe. How do we address the problems in the uh, communities and uh, countries that don't have connectivity? Connectivity is absolutely kind of critical for many of um, the solutions that we're looking at. In, in, it's almost in some circles looked at kind of as a, as a new basic right or a new basic service that people need to have access to. Um, and there are you know, initiatives that UNICEF is one partner to, um, such as the Common Bid for Connectivity, um, which is really a kind of a global coalition which is trying to um, look for a massive investment and commitment around expanding connectivity to those, you know, areas there might may be, you know, pockets in urban areas. And certainly there's vast um, rural areas where, for example, schools, clinics, um, those sorts of places have absolutely no access to connectivity at all. Um, one um, of the areas that UNICEF is specifically focusing on as a contribution to this uh, is our, our um, initiative called Project Kind of Connect, um, and it looks to use satellite technology, and machine learning, and artificial intelligence to help map the schools that are around the world and also overlay that with an understanding of where the connectivity extends to and where it ends um, and therefore help us understand and us and others understand where should we be looking to to expand um, you know access to the internet for example um, and then we're also particularly interested in thinking about not only once you have you know access to the internet that's that's just the beginning of answering the question of of how you you use that to benefit for example learning needs so what is the kind of content that would actually really help to um uh help you know young people who are in school um in schools that are currently unconnected and and those that are but to learn more effectively and to also um you know build skills for the 21st century definitely 
Um, so cool to hear about these uh, initiatives. I must say, I'm just like so inspired as I hear you go on. Um, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, gender equality as well. And just to give you a little bit of background, um, I've spent the past five years of my life working to raise awareness on unconscious bias and gender stereotypes in society. Because, I mean, yes, Norway has come far, but um, in terms of unconscious bias and gender stereotypes, we still have a way to go. And my co-founder and I are now exploring a new venture to increase transparency and accountability in the workplace by encouraging everyone to review their employer in terms of culture and inclusiveness and equality and so on. And hopefully with an end goal of improving equal opportunity for everyone in the workplace, regardless of their background. Now, this is very different than the kind of work that you do, but I would love to um, know a little bit more about the specific problems that you're tackling to address female-specific problems. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think for, for us, there are a couple of areas that are sort of all pervasive in everything that UNICEF does. And um, a gender lens is, is kind of the, the language that we use internally. And we, you know, are really trying to take a gendered lens to everything. When you look at you know, innovation, I think they're really uh, the three things I'd love to to share. One of them is just reflecting upon technology um, and specifically where we look at kind of mobile phone you know, which is is a um, a tool, if you will, or a platform um, for so many things that you know ourselves and others use. And when you look at the access to just that simple piece of technology and gender, it's you know women tend to not be the ones in the family who have access to a phone. If the phone only, if the family only has one phone, unfortunately, it's not going to be the woman who has access to that. Um, so we look at you know everything from that level onwards to understand you know what does that mean for what we are doing um similarly where uh, you know we look at um our our initiatives that are focusing on for example building 21st century skills social entrepreneurship and um, social innovation amongst really marginalized communities um, this is a relatively new initiative um, called upshift um, and it's it's in 15 countries at the moment and growing there again, we take a, a really gendered lens to ensuring that it's a, you know that there are at least as many girls as boys or young men and young women in those programs because we know taking a step back, if you look at, at um, you know society, those societies in general um, and those specific marginalized communities, no matter what lens you put on it, unfortunately, you know, if it's an ethnically marginalized group, the women in that group are going to be even more marginalized. So it's something that we are, you know, extremely sensitive to. I mean, even in our own work, um, where, for example, we run um, a venture fund that, uh, the, you know, that looks at private sector companies and invests in them. We've, um, over the last year, uh, run specific initiatives around uh, around what it means to be a woman entrepreneur as opposed to being just uh, you know an entrepreneur um, and because we think that that has specific challenges especially in um, in developing countries um, and then finally you know there are specific initiatives that we that we um, support in particular because they address um, issues that are 
you know, gendered. So, for example, um, one that I'm uh, we have been really interested in in supporting directly is called Oki, and that's um, an application. And I mean, it sounds simple. It's actually uh, helps young adolescent girls understand and manage their periods. Now, for those of us, you know, who are fortunate enough to have lived in the West, accessing, uh, you know, uh, the sorts of feminine supplies you need to be able to go to work or to school every day, regardless of whether or not you have your period, is is not something you think about. However, that's something that actually keeps girls out of school um, in the millions, you know, one week out of every four, which is crazy because they pay an incredible price in terms of their education, but also in terms of how they feel about themselves because the stigma associated with being a woman and having your period um, is extremely negative. And so what this uh, solution is designed to do is actually be able to help young girls understand when are they going to have their period so that they have, you know, uh, the, 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 um, the suppliers with them um, so that it gives them uh, ideas on how to be able to, you know, continue to go to school and not to stay home during that period of, of time. And it sounds simple because there are, you know, apps that have been designed for all of us to use. But in fact, there's no one app that exists for um, young people who are living in, you know, in very limited connectivity with, you know, not, they can't go down the street to a pharmacy to buy things. And they certainly, because they don't, A, don't necessarily have the money, but B, they don't live in, in communities where that sort of uh, retail even exists. So it's um, also looking very much about how that solution gets contextualized to very different um, countries um, because the understanding, approach, and openness to this topic varies tremendously. So, you know, um, that's an example of something that is very girl and young women specific, and we chose to support it not only because it, you know, is part of, of the area of work that, that we do in supporting um, uh, the health of, of girls and young women, um, but because of the gender angle. Definitely. And I have so many questions, uh, but uh, I, I can't ask them all. I was I was just wondering, because you did say something in the beginning here with um, how you get a biased sample of opinions. Uh, if you, for example, uh, send out all of these questions to the millions of uh, kids or people uh, about, for example, changes in policies or government and so on, and knowing that, you know, there might be, I don't know if there's 80% uh, boys answering and 20% girls, do you have any way of kind of knowing what the gender split is in the answers that you're getting in? And are you able to kind of uh, limit that in some way or the bias? It's a great question. Um, and I'm so happy you're asking me this question now and not, for example, six months ago, um, because up till then we had struggled um, with this. And we'd sort of really, when I say struggled, we'd had a, a lot of um, support questioning challenges from our colleagues who especially work in statistics and demography, um, you know, to sort of say, well, how can we make this data that we're getting from these millions of young people, you know, just more powerful and impactful and what that needs to, in order to address the skew, for example, that you just mentioned, is not only knowing, because we've always known from the beginning, for example, where the a person is located, um, whether they're male and female. So there's certain general things about the, the um, participants that we know, but we were not able to sort of say, A, 
how different or skewed, you know, where are the skews in the population that is that are answering these um, polls and sharing their opinions um, with us. And therefore, if we know those skews, how can we correct for them in a way that makes those responses um, even more reliable and even more representative. And so we've done um, an extensive amount of work with um, some of our other colleagues and will shortly be actually publishing a journal article on exactly this, where we now have a mechanism for doing exactly that and adjusting for the SKUs so that the results are, are you know, can be much more reliably used um, in areas that are sort of much more statistically rigorous. Um, but that's it's key because in some cases, for example, in Malaysia, we have many, many more girls than boys. And in other parts of the world, um, you know, we have many more boys than girls. Uh, so we have to, you know, c correct those skews in either direction, depending where we are. Hmm. Well, I'm at least glad that you uh, are um, addressing that problem. And I'm curious to see what uh, the report says. Now, um, kind of finishing off here, um, we're going over to the advice part of an interview. Now, you're a very obviously inspiring and impactful leader in tech. And uh, as you know, or at least I'm sure that you're aware, there are not that many women in tech, or at least not visible in the general media, which tends to be saturated with white men in tech. Um, do you have any advice for young women who would like to get into tech for good and uh, start taking place in in the tech sphere that uh, we're all reading about so much every day. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do have to say that it is sad that the stereotype that you just mentioned about, you know, that sort of tech bro stereotype is unfortunately pervasive, even in the tech for good sec sort of subsector of that. So I think there's a couple of things that I would recommend. One is, you know, I could say thank you to you to giving me the opportunity um, to share, you know, what we're doing and why we're exciting as a woman working in tech myself. So I think there's a lot perhaps more, um, and then you're leading in this example, that we can do to support each other. Because coming to the advice part, um, it certainly is, um, you know, I think a case of being seen. And uh, when I look around sort of the tech for good sector, there is not, it's not a case that 90% of the people working in the sector are men. There are certainly um, many more, you know, higher percentage than that of women working in it, but you wouldn't know that simply because they're not actually given a platform like this or any other to be recognized for their work. And, you know, I think that quite a lot's been written whether you um, agree with it or not about maybe why that is the case. Do women are women more collaborative and therefore do they not claim this space? Um, don't they contest, you know, uh, for, for more recognition, et cetera? But, but certainly I think um, uh, my advice to a younger person would be, you know, not at the cost of collaborating. Like I think you should always do so, and especially in the tech for good sector, collaboration is absolutely essential. I mean, it's sort of a basic principle for us, but but make sure that you are getting the, the credit and the recognition for what you are contributing. So I think that that is a huge piece of why we are kind of, you know, invisible or not as visible um, as the credit and the work and the ideas and initiative should be giving um, to women. So I would sort of say that that would be a key um, piece of advice. I agree 100%. And uh, I often uh, want to give that men to advice, uh, that advice to men as well. Um, it's important to be aware that women might have the tendency to be less uh, bold about their own accomplishments 
and might take less credit for their work. And maybe men, uh, it would be maybe easier for men to say, you know, make sure to recognize your female colleagues work. Now, uh, we have three questions, uh, quick ones before you go. Now, if you could give your 20 year old self a piece of advice, what would that be? <laughs> um, let's see. Um, I think it would be to uh, maybe not to doubt myself as much, to have more co- self-confidence, pro- probably. Um, because I remember actually a lesson to, that I had as my 25-year-old self was I had more experience in something, and um, but in, you know, much less confidence than uh, a, a male kind of person who was competing for the same uh, position in the private sector, um, but who also happened to be a good friend. Uh, and very, we had a very open and transparent sort of relationship. And I remember sitting down um, at dinner one day as we were both going through this kind of recruitment process and just sort of saying, well, you know, can, can we talk about this or not? Or, you know, and, and realizing that the way that he was presenting his much less relevant experience was, you know, maybe three or four times um, as uh, powerful, impactful, I don't know, um, um, and um, confident, certainly, than I was. Um, and that really made me think um, that, that, you know, had that been, and, and has that been a pattern of behavior for me, you know, how, how do I need to be more confident um, in be, being able to talk about what I do and can do? Um, and what is it, what's the reason for not being, you know, as confident as sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of communicating publicly more about that. And I think it's ironic because one of my previous careers was as a journalist, but then I realized, you know, that is sort of, being able to tell someone else's story. So the question again, then I think my other piece of advice would be to think about how you tell your own story um, and whether that's the story of your career or one story about a thing that you've done that you know just really inspires you, but to spend time crafting the narrative that relates to you um, because stories, narrative are definitely things that are fundamentally human. Um, and it, you know, it's definitely an area that I'm working on myself and would have benefited had I had I started when I was 20 years old. Uh, well, I'm very glad that you've uh, added more confidence because uh, it's uh, amazing to listen to you. So you have every reason to be uh, confident today. Uh, do you have any book or podcast that you would like to recommend? So, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. So I, I, my podcast tastes go from one, there's sort of a set of podcasts that I, I always listen to sort of on an almost daily basis. And it's really news driven and it crosses the political spectrum because I'm really interested in hearing, you know, what someone I would disagree with thinks. And I think that trying to expose yourself to not only the things you agree with from the, you know, political persuasion that you agree with, um, that, you know, I, I love to expose myself to things that make me really angry, for example, or to make me question, hang on, you know, maybe I do understand another person's perspective. Um, but if I had to, to, to choose just one, um, I'd say that I find the BBC World Services documentary um, uh, podcast, which are sort of longer form, really deeper dives into a range of issues, um, is just always so interesting. So whether you're talking about um, the kind of uh, you know, a challenge where elephants and humans are, you know, in conflict over ever limited amounts of land in northern India, um, or you're talking about um, the journey that gets traced of of people who try to make their way, for example, to the United States 
um, through an incredibly sort of bandit-ridden and, you know, um, uh, life-endangering journey through uh, the jungle in, in sort of Latin America, it's, it's just always uh, really insightful and really well-produced. So that would probably be my, my favorite podcast. Thank you. And I love your uh, resonation around why you uh, or, or the kind of podcast that you listen to. I think that takes a lot of discipline to listen to podcasts that wouldn't necessarily resonate with your own uh, beliefs or opinions. But uh, I think it's really clever and uh, smart and more people should do that, myself included. Now, where should people go to follow you? Great. Well, um, I'm trying to be a better sort of social media citizen. Um, and so I regularly post um, I'm on Twitter at, at Acone, at A-C-C-O-N-E. Um, I'm, I'm quite fairly active on LinkedIn as well. So those are probably the two best places to catch me. And I love hearing from others, um, you know, and, and also um, learn a lot from links, articles, you know, and opinions that people share uh, with me in those places. So I'd love to hear from from your listeners as well. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. This has just been really uh, inspiring and uh, incredibly interesting. So uh, thank you for taking the time. And thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Future Forecast with Oslo Business Forum and Isabel Ringness. Tune in in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership and sustainability with experts from around the world. If you like this podcast and are wondering how you can support us, please take a second to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts because it really helps. And if you have a friend or a colleague that you think might appreciate it, every single share counts. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Talk to you in two weeks.